This is John Halsman, and welcome to a special Around the World in 20 Minutes holiday edition. And what I'm going to try to do now that I'm safely ensconced back in Milan is spend the next uh, three times that we talk before the end of the year with the big three political risk stories in no particular order this year. We're going to look at what the Ukraine war means, what endemic inflation means, and what the Sino-American Cold War means, because these are the three topics that, in one form or another, I've been traveling all over the world with my eight gigs here in, here in the autumn. Uh, just as a, as a forerunner of what's to come in 2023, we already have a ton of events in the calendar, just for you to know that in, in January, I'll be taking my family on a trip down the Nile. Hopefully no one's murdered or I run into Hercule Poirot. But I've always wanted to see the Valley of the Tomb of the Kings, and I'm going to do that with Sarah and the kids. And I'm very excited about that as a trip to start the year, just learning things and uh, satisfying my endless curiosity. So that'll be one. Second trip of the year, we're going to go to London, uh, my favorite hotel in the world, the Langham, John. And I are going. Good night, my my uh, trusty companion and chief of staff. We're going to go to London and try to make sense of what's going on in the UK. Then I'm off to see the kids in Germany and uh, continue working on the book, The Last Best Chance in February. And then March is crazy where we have events at various times, a war game in Sydney, a war game in Singapore, an event in London, and another event at one of my favorite haunts, Lake Como. And that's just the first three months of the year. Uh, and so I'm enjoying this little bit of town downtime with you back here in my office. And I thought we'd do these three before the end of the year so that we could end uh, 2022 with the big three stories, Ukraine, inflation, and the Sino-American Cold War, and begin the new year with a bang and see where that takes us. So off we go. What are the big picture things to know about Ukraine? Um the first thing, uh, the reason that I think we've had such a great year and have been so successful, our call record is almost perfect for the year. And the reason is that we, we realize, unlike many of our competitors, that we're living in a different historical era. We have this historical touchstone to how do we look at things. We're not political scientists. We don't think theoretically, but we look at lived life as humans have done so for the past 3,000 years and look for the patterns in them. And as Mark Twain said, history may not repeat itself, but boy, it does it rhyme. Those patterns are there if you can look for it. And I think the advantage we've had in looking at the Ukraine war and looking at inflation and in looking at the Sino-American Cold War is that we're aware that we're now living in a different historical era that the post-Cold War era, which went on from about 1990 to, say, through COVID in 2020, was one distinct era with one dis distinct set of understandings of how the world worked. And as this age of globalization is passing, it's giving way to this new age of anxiety. And that one way to look at things is that Ukraine and the Sino-American Cold War and endemic inflation are merely new data points navigational points for us to sail our ship in this new era, that they're part of this larger historical picture. And that's given us a great advantage. Seeing this big picture makes drilling down on the specifics a lot easier. And that'd be the first thing that I think that I'd say about the year and why we've managed the Ukraine war, amongst other things, very well. Um, looking at where we are in the war, obviously it's winter time now in Ukraine, and so things are slowing down until the spring. Um, the first thing to say is that outside drivers are going to be the key to the war. And this is often the case, that the two outside drivers that matter 
um, are, first of all, the Achilles heel for the Ukrainians is how long are the Americans prepared to write endless checks to them uh, without having any say in what goes on strategically. And for that, I fault the Biden administration. If uh, it's your birthday party, you get to pick the tunes. If the United States is paying for everything, it ought to pick what goes on in the war. And yet Ukraine has had a, a lot of run with the football. I was very struck in Washington when I was there about how everyone said, oh, we're going to let it leave it up to the Zelensky regime as to when to negotiate with the Russians. This strikes me as the height of lunacy, as their interests and American interests are not likely to be exactly the same. And again, we're paying for everything. And this seems to me to be an abdication of responsibility. How much longer, though, the United States is going to pay for everything with now a Republican House is certainly a matter of doubt. My guess is that Republicans will continue to pay for the Ukraine war, but at lower levels, certainly, and will indeed say that to do this, we want certain benchmarks to be reached, for instance, not invading Crimea, which could lead to a nuclear standoff or even the use of tactical nuclear weapons by the Russians, that we're not going to give them money to do things that we think are this side of lunacy, and we're going to give less money. So this is part of the outside drivers. How long will America continue to pay? It's been up of $60 billion for a secondary, at best, issue, whereas we have primary issues in our own country, the opioid crisis, endemic inflation, the cost of living crisis, terrible situation with our education system, our infrastructure, etc. And why in the world are we paying $60 billion for a third order priority? And that's got to be a tension and an outside driver. The second one, the second Achilles heel for the Ukrainians is European unity is far less than meets the eye. While Poland and the UK may want to go on and burn Moscow and are even more hawkish than the Americans, France, Germany, and Italy, if you read all the polling numbers, and I commend particularly the poll, mid-year poll of the European Council on Foreign Relations, um, when asked these publics in France, Germany, and Italy, when they're asked, you can have justice for the Ukrainians, but it's going to mean a recession, it's going to mean energy difficulties for the continent and an unsettled continent for the near future, or you can have peace today where the lines draw, which isn't necessarily fair to the Ukrainians, but ends the war immediately. Even then, about two-thirds were in favor of ending the war. Now, let's wait until after the winter to see how those numbers look. But my guess is that they're not going away and that France, Germany, and Italy have a very different conception of how this war will end than do Poland or the UK. And so European unity is less than meets the eye. So coming divisions within Europe about the war and coming reluctance on the United States to be daddy war boxes to the little orphan Annie of Ukraine strikes me as a huge problem for the Ukrainians and an outside driver to look for. The second outside driver that's worrying uh, for the Russians, their Achilles heel, is Putin has had to stop pretending this is just a little local difficulty. Even the phrasing that the Ukraine war was a special military operation, the, the wording, the Orwellian wording, is designed to say to the average Russian, look, this is no big deal, it's easily handleable, and of course, it hasn't been, and Putin has had to call up a more common draft. It's not a full draft yet, but he's had to bring up reservists to the tune of 300,000 people, of which about 180,000 will be able to eventually end up on the field. Some are already there, and some are in transit. But this is now a war that affects everybody, and if it doesn't continue to go well, Putin owns this war. And he's the one who said this wouldn't be a big deal for it now to become a very big deal means that the onus is on Putin and the political target is on his back. 
So how long the Russians are prepared to put up vast sacrifice without victory versus how long the Americans are prepared to pay for it and the Europeans are prepared to risk political risk problems. These are the three outside drivers that are going to determine the course of the war in the coming year, which is not something you're going to read anywhere else. Um, the second thing to say, and we've gotten this right again, and a lot of people you know, indulged in wishful thinking, the second thing to say is that this war isn't going to end anytime soon, and we've gotten this right, for the simple reason that both sides still think they can win. The Russians are counting um, on Western war weariness and these blank checks to Ukraine. They know they have another 180,000 people. And yes, admittedly, many of them are cannon fodder heading out to the field. But as Stalin said, at a certain point, quantity becomes quality and 100,000 new troops is an awful lot of people. On the other hand, the, Rus the Ukrainians are counting on Russian war weariness in the face of a lack of victory. These people are being put in the meat grinder and aren't winning anything, that Russia remains a pariah state, and that this war weariness within Russia will grow and Putin will get more and more of the blame. At the same time, the Ukrainians get better and better at using NATO weaponry. They were trained using Soviet-era weaponry, of course. Now they've switched to NATO weaponry. It takes a while to get to know how to use the advanced rocketry at all. And the Ukrainians every month are getting better at using that. So even though there's a huge number of new Russian troops, perhaps on the battlefield, even if ill-equipped, ill-led, and ill-prepared, it's still a large number. The Ukrainians say, well, we, we are a, a cohesive army. We know how to use Western equipment better and better and more and more effectively. And so that we can blunt this coming attack and remain or at least go back onto the counteroffensive in the new year. And these are the two stories that both sides tell themselves. And as long as both narratives are still in play, as long as both sides still think they can win, the war will go on. And so the war will last for at least the better part of the coming year, if not longer. And you heard it here first for all the people who said the war would be over in a month. And remember, most of my competitors said the war wouldn't happen in the first place, unlike us who called it two months in advance and then said it would be a long war. They said there wouldn't be a war, it would be a short war, and they're having to yet again explain why they're wrong. And our answer is simple. Both sides still think they can win, and so the war is going to go on. Looked at in a broader global geostrategic sense, though, we can already see outcomes from the war. At the big picture level, the way we look at geopolitical risk, the way my risk firm works, the war, as we've said before, Otto von Bismarck got this right. When you draw the sword, you roll the dice. You change the very nature of the world. Things happen you're utterly unprepared for. The best example is World War I. If you look before the war, none of those people would have behaved as they did if they knew the Austro-Hungarian Empire would cease to exist the Hohenzollern Empire in Germany would cease to exist. The Ottoman Empire in Turkey would cease to exist. And the Romanov Empire in Russia would cease to exist. They certainly wouldn't have committed suicide. Once you draw the sword and roll the dice, things change and get out of control. And we can see this. Before the war, the great power order with the two superpowers, then the great powers beneath the latter room to maneuver and decide whether to go their own way or not, was pretty well set. China had no immediate allies, and the United States had firmly behind it the UK and Anglosphere, Japan and India. And so the US, UK, Anglosphere, Japan and India were four great powers. China against them as the coming superpower was the other. And then Russia and the EU were perched in between. Sometimes Russia sided with China. Sometimes it was neutralist. 
Sometimes the EU sided with the U.S. Sometimes it was neutralist. For the EU, the basic reason was Germany, uh, which had an economic model that really mitigated against doing anything with the Americans. It was a model based on cheap Russian gas to high industrial outputs, petrochemicals, cars, things of this nature, selling them to China. Well, if Russia is your economic input and China is your economic output, at best, you're going to remain neutralist. And indeed, that's what Germany was doing increasingly. And despite many of us begging them to stop, you know, suicidally giving up their energy policies of contracting it to the Russians, the Germans were well down the road of doing this with Angela Merkel, the Neville Chamberlain of her time, having really ceded autonomy on this issue because she let Mercantilist policy dictate her foreign policy. But that left the EU more and more neutralist. Russia, on the other hand, great Russian nationalism is the ticket to why Putin has been popular for much of the last two decades, didn't want to be second rate to China, as we've said before, the Batman problem. And we'll talk about this. Nobody wants to wear Robin's tights. I mean, they're ugly. The problem is that both the Chinese and the Russians are highly nationalistic people. Somebody's got to be second banana. Somebody's got to be Robin. And in the current constellation of forces, given the economic and military power of China, that's certainly going to be Russia. They didn't want to fully end up in that subordinate role because that hits at what makes Putin popular in the first place, his view of himself as a modern-day Peter the Great. And so the U.S., the U.K., Anglosphere, Japan, and India were on one side, China on the other, with Russia and the EU perched precariously between the two. Now, after the war has taken hold, you have an entirely different outcome. Yes, the U.S., the U.K., and Japan are still all on one side, Japan, of course, seeing the rise of China very much closer to the United States, and it's always been a close ally since 1945, but even closer than it's been in the past, agreeing to significant defense increases, agreeing to, agreeing to basing in Okinawa, becoming a member of CPP, TPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, setting up this free trade pact of the Pacific Rim, and then also under late Premier Shinzo Abe, the greatest statesman no one knows enough about, re-establishing the quadrilateral initiative, the mini-NATO, mini to take on China with Anglosphere country Australia, superpower U.S., and great powers Japan and India. So you have the U.S., U.K., Anglosphere, Japan on one side, but now the EU also firmly back in the American camp. And there's nothing like a threat to remind you of what matters and whether Europe likes it or not, and they certainly do not, rightly so, they, they may have outsourced their energy policy to Russia, their trade policy to China, but they've outsourced their security policy to the United States. And boy, suddenly NATO doesn't look so unsexy and brain dead as Macron said in the past. Rather, it looks like insurance. You may hate paying the premiums, but boy, you're glad when you have it when there's catastrophe. And the Ukraine war for the Europeans has been an unmitigated catastrophe. And so the EU, now firmly back in the fold, and indeed neutralist Sweden and Finland begging to join, and we're trying to dislodge Turkey from stopping them, but NATO back fully on the cards, the EU realizing that it needs the United States, so it's now firmly back in the alliance. So you have the US, UK, Anglosphere, Japan, and the EU on one side. You have on the other side, Russia, now firmly in the Chinese orbit, and you have India now per perching itself precariously in a neutralist position. So let's look at this. 
I mean, the first thing to say is the Batman problem has been solved. Russia is now in the pocket of China. For instance, it has to sell China energy to keep its energy policy going and at a cut rate along Chinese and Indian terms. And so the energy flows are now diverting from Europe to Russia, to China and India, but on the terms of China, who wishes to, of course, import more. But again, it can, it can afford to do so on its own terms. And given the calamity of how horrible the Russian armies looked, Russia has literally, as a pariah nation, nowhere else to go but in China's pocket. So in our new world order, the bad man problem has been solved and Russia is now firmly the subordinate partner to superpower China. On the other hand, the EU is now firmly back with the United States as a subordinate power. But as I've said before, divisions within the EU lay ahead with France, the core of the EU, France, Germany and Italy wanting peace at almost any price and Poland and the UK saying, no, 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 on to Moscow. And so there are divisions ahead, but the EU for the moment also firmly in the camp. And then you have India, which is the poster boy for the non-aligned movement. Um, and this is back to what I call the JFK problem. If the Batman problem has been solved, the JFK problem is just loose upon us at the moment. Jack Kennedy used his father's immense wealth in the 1950s when he was a senator to go see the rest of the world, particularly with Bobby, the developing world. And he realized very early on, well ahead of most analysts, that the developing world was neither with one side nor the other, with neither the Soviets nor with the United States, and that to win the game of the Cold War, to dominate the era, one had to win over these emerging markets. And the fascinating thing, and this is where India really shows this, is India is still very pro-American, member of the Quad, within the Indo-Pacific region, because it sees China bullying China as its greatest threat. But in a global sense, it's very much not on side, because emerging markets, by definition, don't want to end up in the pocket of either superpower. You want maximum room to maneuver. And so you're not going to end up either fighting with for Beijing or for the United States. You're going to try to have maximum room to maneuver. You're going to hedge. And this is what emerging markets have done. And India is just the foremost example of this as it's drifted from the American camp into this more neutralist position, which fits itself as a non-aligned nation. Look, in, in the Cold War, India led the non-aligned movement under Nehru and also non-aligned and even tilted toward the Russians, was neutral with a Russian tilt. It still buys a plurality of its weaponry from the Russians. It has longstanding ties with the Russians. And so neutralism is the most that we can hope for. Strikingly, nine of the 10 most populous countries in the world, and I want to repeat this, nine of the 10 most populous countries in the world are neutral over the Ukraine war. The West may have fallen into line, but the rest have not. Think of these countries, Indonesia, Turkey, Mexico, Argentina, uh, Brazil. These are countries that are saying, no, we don't want to just be with the Americans. Fascinatingly, Lula, now going to be once again president of Brazil, began his campaign by saying, look, the Russians have behaved atrociously in Ukraine, but the Americans and NATO have played a role as well. And this was in his opening statement when he was talking about running for president. And most people in this emerging market are neither in the Chinese camp nor the American camp. And we're back almost to Jack Kennedy using his dad's wealth to visit the rest of the world. We're going to spend an awful lot of time in the next year talking about these emerging market countries. 
that are neither with the United States nor with the Chinese and see if they begin to move in one direction or another. Because given beneath the great power level, this regional power level of Indonesia, Turkey, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, places like this, South Africa, places like this, this could very well tell the tale as, who, as to who dominates the world moving ahead. At the moment, the odds still favor the United States. It has the UK Anglosphere, Japan and the EU on side, China has Russia with India in the middle, but let's keep an eye on the JFK problem moving ahead. All of this means that the, that the Ukraine war, like all wars, has come to become a bigger issue than people had thought at the time. And all these side effects, including changing the very nature of the power order of the world, have happened out of what began as a little local conflict has now fundamental global consequences. That's what the Ukraine war means, and that's why this story has been such a big part of my life over the last year. I'm glad to have shared it with you. Uh, this is the first of three, of, th of a part of three of these. Uh, we're going to move on to endemic inflation and then the Sino-American Cold War. But I thought I'd end the year having a deep dive at the things we've been focusing on before we move ahead into 2023. Listen to all of you. Have a wonderful holiday. It's been a great blessing for me that our, our market and our community have grown this year out of any size of recognition. For those of you who haven't subscribed yet, please do so. And for those of you who have, as it's Christmas time, now is the time to pledge. We're asking only $70 a year to give you a 2023 where if our call record is anything like now, will be fantastic. And we're going to learn things and talk about things that you just don't get in the rest of the media panoply. And we love to do that. But Christmas is the season of giving. Now's the time to come up with the $70. Thank you very much. Happy holidays and on to the next.